going to open to the 27th chapter of the book of Matthew. There's only one more to go after this one. 27th chapter of the book of Matthew, where we left off last time was Jesus being taken to the Sanhedrin, being judged by the Jewish council, being beaten, ridiculed and mocked, denied by his people, and ultimately denied by one of his closest and most avid followers, Peter. In that scene, then, he is taken off for round two. In chapter 27, we have the account of Jesus' trial by the Romans. So we have the religious order and their attempts at a trial. We have the secular order and their trial. Mixed in that, we have different scenes and different actions by people like Judas and the Pharisees that stand out and are interesting as they are woven into this story. We have ultimately the condemnation and subsequent crucifixion of Jesus. So in this chapter, there's a lot. It's a big chapter, just like really the last five have been. This one obviously is culminating in the event that we've kind of been waiting for. For 27 chapters of this book, for 33 years, for the last six days, for the last few hours, we have been kind of moving towards this moment where Jesus ultimately goes to the cross. Now, it is... Funny that in this chapter, you're going to kind of see themes play out and things happen that we have been talking about over and over again, chapter by chapter, the true nature of certain people, the true, um, just exactly what Jesus has been preaching on this whole time. In 27 chapters, you've had all of these discussions about religion versus relationship, obedience versus legalism, um, true repentance versus just guilt and remorse and obligation. I mean, all these things have kind of been playing out through all of these chapters. And it's just funny that in this last chapter where this pivotal moment is happening, where Jesus is going to the cross, we will see examples in the Pharisees and we'll see examples in Judas of these themes that he has been preaching on for years and that we have been preaching on for years. If I could just stretch this out a little bit longer, maybe the ministry of Matthew, the preaching of Matthew would run about as long as Jesus' natural ministry did. We could maybe tie that in. I know that would not be the case. I promised Emily that after I got done with Matthew, I would quit you know, preaching hour and 20 minutes every Sunday. So um, she's holding me to that. But in this chapter, you will notice some things of importance. The sense of justification in the Pharisees' actions, from the silver to the demanding of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus Barabbas versus Jesus the Christ, and the importance of the cross. These are kind of the big themes that we're going to look at in this chapter. The first thing that we come to, and as we start reading, we're going to read through 1 down to uh, verse 8. And that's where we're going to start this morning. So chapter 27 of the book of Matthew, everybody open up and read with me from verse 1 down to verse 8. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See you to it. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful for us to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. 
And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, the field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled, sorry, getting, getting nine and ten. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Now, this first section here that we read has this scene of Jesus has been taken by the chief priest. He's been delivered over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And in this, you have this scene also of the story of Judas and what happened to him. Remember that Jesus has already made a statement about Judas and his ultimate end. He said that when you're, when you're talking about, you know, offenses or stumblings that are going to happen in the kingdom, he said, woe to those who would cause offense he said, but more importantly, woe to the one that uh, by which offense comes. Okay. And he was speaking kind of directly at Judas and what would happen. And he makes a point that he calls him the son of perdition. And then in another case, he says it would be better that he would not have even been born. Okay. So his end is not ever romanticized as some kind of heroic self-sacrificial scene. Okay. It is always viewed even by Jesus, who is the ultimate authority, using the phrase that we have often heard it would be better that he would not have even been born. Here you have Judas come to the scene again and you look at it and you go, oh man, look, Judas is truly repentant and sorrowful about what he did. Look, he's turning, he's giving the money back. Isn't that admirable? But we have to ask the question about What's going on with here with Judas? Is this just remorse or is this redemption? Okay. Remember all the things that line up about Judas to this point, And even when you go into the book of Jude and you have it referred to in other places, Judas is never described in positive tones like he is a remorseful, repentant, redemptive character. Okay. This though is one of those themes that has been pointed to throughout all of Jesus's ministry. Okay. You have this scene here with Judas and what you see by his actions are kind of the same thing that we talked about last week and the week before about the false witnesses that they tried to bring up against Jesus. You have them in the trial with the Sanhedrin. They were grabbing these guys to be false witness to say, hey, I saw Jesus do this. I saw Jesus kill a man. I saw Jesus steal from the temple. I saw Jesus some kind of false witness to bear against him to give them justification for condemnation and death. And what they found is every false witness they tried to persuade to come up and talk about what bad things Jesus did, everyone would come up and go, well, I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't really see Jesus do any bad things. And we talked about how his actions spoke louder than his words. There was no one who could say he did anything bad because everything he did was so good. Instead, they had to try to catch him on his doctrine and say, oh, look, I heard him say that he would tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days. Boom, got you there. Look, you just blasphemed. You were going to destroy the temple of God. So that's how they ended up catching Jesus. But they couldn't catch him on his actions. Even when they wanted to see evil in him, no one would testify that he did anything evil because he didn't. He was the purest, holiest character in this entire story. So it's almost the same kind of thing you see here with Judas, at least in my mind. Judas could not help but identify and agree that Jesus was innocent. Okay? There was no way. He could not trick in his mind. He could not lie to himself enough to believe honestly that Jesus was guilty and deserving of death. Okay? So... There's this history with the Jews going all the way back to Deuteronomy, which we have talked about in, in recent months and the last year. We talked about how there is this thing that God has about the shedding of innocent blood. Okay. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. 
I mean, God's talking to Cain and says, the blood of your brother is speaking to me. It cries out to me from the ground. There's this weird, interesting connection that God revisits over and over again about the shedding of innocent blood, it being absorbed into the earth and being a lasting, living testimony to the injustice that was done there. He would speak of that over and over again. He would talk about it with Israel's history saying, if you get into this shedding of innocent blood, it will pollute the land and the land will vomit you out. Okay. I mean, it's just lovely, lovely, you know, language that's used there. I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's what happened, you know, and not to get too deep into vomiting, but vomiting is a violent thing. It's not something, I mean, if it was easy, you know. If it was a nice, agreeable thing, I think everybody would be okay with it. Nobody looks at it and says, man, I can't wait to vomit. Isn't that fun? I don't have anything to do this weekend. Let's try that out, okay? Nobody looks at it as a positive thing. So when God uses that language to describe how forcefully and violently the land, this holy land that God had given them, would expel them for their shedding of innocent blood, it is a violent and cataclysmic event. But he ties it back to the shedding of innocent blood. He said, it is a gross injustice and you can't hide it. You can try to hide it all you want to. You can bury that body. You can drop it in the bottom of the ocean. You can do whatever you want to do. But the blood that you shed will be an everlasting testimony to the injustice that was done. And it will always cry out to me from the land. I mean, that's just the, the imagery of that is just fantastic. And so Judas here is not having some kind of conversion redemption moment where he's like, oh no, I have killed the son of God who I believe in and I profess that I... No, that's not what's happening. He is following along with the old school traditional you know, Jewish belief that killing innocent blood is a really bad thing. If you remember, and we don't necessarily have time to go back there, but you remember there was an interesting scene out of Deuteronomy or Numbers 1 that we mentioned about how if there was a dead body found in a field next to a city, then the elders of the city that were in closest proximity to that, that field would have to go and take a cow. And I know this is fun and graphic for a Sunday morning, but it will really catch your uh, attention. Had to take that cow down to a river, cut its head off, and then had to wash their hands in the water of the river and say, our hands be clean of this blood. We don't know who killed this man. So that... The guilt of the innocent blood that was shed would not be attributed to that city and those people and ultimately cause their destruction. So this, I mean, even when they had nothing to do with it, they didn't even know it was out there. God's going, hey, there's a dead body out in this field. Somebody better do something. Somebody better claim this or somebody better be brought to justice for this or somebody better be doing what I've told them to do to make sure the innocent blood guilt is removed from you. Otherwise, I'm going to wipe you out. That's how forcefully God spoke about the shedding of innocent blood. So here you have Judas come to this epiphany moment where he's running back to the, to the Pharisees and saying, Oh no, no, I can't, I can't take this money. I don't want anything to do with this. Why? Because he didn't want the guilt of innocent blood applied to him. So it's much more remorse from a worldly sense than it really is a repentant remorse. And what I mean by that is even though the word repentance is used, that word just simply means to change your mind. There is plenty of people who do not follow Jesus Christ who change their mind on a day-to-day basis. Okay. There is a huge difference between that and turning from a sin to obedience in God and Jesus Christ. Okay. And where I get that from is when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, you will have the statement, Godly sorrow or godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, which is not to be regretted of. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What was Judas's end here? So guilty... So grieving, so sorrowful about what he has committed and done, he goes and hangs himself. So you can see that both griefs exist. And there are actions that come from those griefs. One of them is given by God for the purpose of producing repentance unto salvation. The other 
is grief that ultimately leads to more sorrow that ultimately leads to death. So here's what applies to us in this point. What we need to be seeking in our lives, because guess what? We are all broken, sinful people, correct? We all have lives that are not perfect. We are all going to do things at some point in time that are offensive to God. Now, that is not a leeway, okay? Because sometimes you, you preach and you talk about these things like, oh, you can't help be a sinner. You're always going to be a sinner until we're made perfect. And people say, well, then, okay, that just, you know, if I'm always going to be a sinner, I shouldn't really be too broken up about the sins that I commit. Can't help it. Can't do anything about it. Can't undo it. Of course, that's not what the scripture would tell us. The scripture would tell us God expects perfection. And that is the marker that we're reaching for. In fact, in the book of 1 John, he would say those who continue to practice sin, who are not just, I committed it, I'm a sinful creature and it's in my nature and there's going to be times that I'm going to fail and give up and I'm going to give in. But those who are actively continuing to pursue it as their life goal. He would say the father's not in you. So with us, we have the same desire here in this situation. We should desire the beautiful gift of godly grief. The grief that comes from our sins, from our missteps, from our times of anger and our times of lashing out, our times of weakness, our times of failure. We should desire that godly given grief that comes from that. Why? Because God doesn't give it to us because he's masochistic or hates us. He says, I'm giving you that because I'm doing it to produce repentance. My grief, my chastisement, my work in you is for a purpose and to produce something. Whereas that of the world doesn't produce anything good. It just produces death. There's a difference between godly sorrow over your sins and depression about your life. One leads to repentance unto salvation in life. The other leads most of the time to death. If we're sorrowful and depressed about the world, well, guess what? You're not alone. The world is a sorrowful and depressing place for the most part. It is Christ in the world. It is Christ in us. And everything that Christ is doing in us that gives us the hope to get through this sorrowful and depressing world. So don't let yourself be wrapped up in the guilt that you're on this hamster wheel of depression. Okay, where all you see before you is guilt and failings and all these things. Instead, what we're going to see in here and probably next time is the victory that is attached to it. Do we get that? What God is working in us has a positive effect, even though it may be a negative situation. The Pharisees here, too, what's very interesting about this is that, again, what we've seen over and over again with the Pharisees is they will never miss an opportunity to make sure they're checking all the check boxes of legalism. You got a group of people who have condemned an innocent man. Even the reprobate Judas can have some grief over the fact that he has condemned an innocent man to death. The Pharisees have no grief whatsoever about this situation. And even in that, when you have already so flagrantly broken the law, you are so wrapped up in your legalistic mindset that you got to make sure this money doesn't get misappropriated or else. Do we not find that really interesting? You see how blind... That legalism can make you. You have just condemned a man. In fact, in a minute, you're going to cry out for it. Please kill this innocent man. You're breaking like 50 of the commandments. You are flagrantly disobeying God. 
you are completely out of bounds. You are absolutely no way uh, kind of living in the covenant relationship that Jehovah had established with you. You have completely abandoned anything that he has taught you. But man, we're going to make sure that money gets in the right place. We can't, that can't come back into the temple. That would profane us. That is the price of blood money. We could never put that in the temple. That would make us in violation of the law. Let's make sure we put it in the right place. Let's go buy the potter's field, or as it's called, the field of blood or achaldema, which is this place that continues to exist today, which is a place where you could bury the foreigner. Okay, that would be an unclean spot. The foreigner, the refugee, the uh, resident alien, whoever it may be, who maybe they haven't completely ascribed to Judaic law, so they're unclean, they're unholy. You can't bury them with the rest of us. They're an unclean people, so we got their own special field that you can bury them in, and that would be what the price of the blood money went to. That way, we're kind of accomplishing the legalistic side of things of not putting unholy money into the temple and possibly profaning it. Now, you've got to give them credit. They weren't as corrupt as to just take the money and pocket it. I mean, that was pretty good on their part. Got to give them some little bit of credit there. There's if some people who were outside of their religious fervor might have just said, no, so Judas doesn't want it. We'll just slip that right in the old pocket here and we'll take it home. And that way, no harm, no foul, you know, that kind of a deal. At least they had some religious morals about them, right? And look how good they're doing in keeping the law. I mean, they're putting that money in a place that wouldn't profane them. They're really keeping holy. I bet after this they go wash their hands just right, you know. And they go out and they make the right little sacrifices and they do all their other little religious things. Oh, by the way, while they're chanting for the death of Jesus, their Messiah. The gross blindness that their legalism causes is a testimony to everything Jesus has been talking about them for three and a half years. That's why I said it's interesting that this portion of the story is woven in at this time because it's almost like an affirmation of everything that Jesus has been talking about them. You say, man, he really beats up on the Pharisees. Well, now we see why, right? If we haven't already caught it before, let's catch it now. We're a bunch of religious people who are actively participating in murdering an innocent man. Are making sure they continue to keep their religion just right on point. Why do I constantly go back to harp on that? Because we are just as susceptible to the same legalistic mindset. Okay? We are just as susceptible to the same legalistic mindset. Now, I would hope that we would never get so far off track and so blinded by this that we would continue to do our church routine and feel really good about ourselves while condemning an innocent person to death. But it is something that we really have to be careful about because legalism will have you ignoring, disregarding, or straight out disobeying what the word of God is telling you while feeling good about yourself because you are appropriately handling issues on a day-to-day basis. Legalism will have you ignoring disregarding or straight out disobeying what the word of God is telling you while feeling good about yourself because you're appropriately, quote unquote, handling issues on a day to day basis. What do I mean? So I'm not loving the foreigner, the poor or the widow, like the word of God has commanded me to, but I'm tithing. So I feel pretty good about myself. And maybe I'm tithing 20% instead of 10 and that should make me feel really good about myself. Or I'm not loving my wife like Christ told me to. I'm not loving my wife like Christ loves the church. I'm not laying down my life for my wife like I have been commanded to by the word of God. But I voted pro-life in the last election, so I feel pretty good about myself. I'm not submitting to Christ in obedience and baptism and repentance or whatever that may come out into. But I'm at church every Sunday. Doesn't that count? 
The idea of making ourselves feel good about ourselves by doing religious things is vastly different from obeying the word of God and doing what he tells us to do. And that is what we have been preaching on for the last three years. There is a big difference between doing religious things and feeling good about ourselves and submitting to what the word of God has told us, no matter what that might look like. Look, as I said last week, it should make us from time to time uncomfortable to have the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to us. It should make us uncomfortable to have things brought out in the word. That's why I love doing expository preaching. Okay. Because when you have to read an entire book of the Bible, you run up against a lot of things that you don't normally preach on. Okay. You run through things that aren't good topical sermons to jump into. And so you jump over them and you don't necessarily avoid them, but you don't necessarily ever get to them either. So when you go through and you read through a book of the Bible, it's like, man, there's a lot of stuff in that. You get into some uncomfortable situations in first Corinthians. You get into all sorts of things that you wouldn't normally go. Okay, let's go talk about the man sleeping with his stepmother. Boom. Topical sermon. We don't normally dive into that. But when you preach through a book of the Bible, you have to cover it. And it gets uncomfortable. When we look into the scriptures and see where Christ has commanded us to do things, whether that's loving our neighbor, loving the foreigner, loving our enemy, or whether that's how we conduct ourselves in the church or how we treat different people or how we look at at different races and cultures and all these things, all of those things combined together at some point in time is going to make you uncomfortable and that is perfectly fine. We should feel uncomfortable about it. It should make us grind in our souls so that we look and go, am I really doing what Christ has commanded me to do? So we have to be careful though that we aren't sliding onto the side of legalism where we go, well, but I mean, overall, we're pretty good. We're in the right church. We got the right stuff. We do the right things. I'm here every Sunday. I'm tired. Whatever it may be. All of the things that we can chalk up to just a religious exercise can have us feeling pretty good about ourselves. Jesus did not come, nor does the gospel endorse you feeling good about yourself. Okay. He didn't come down here and say, I'm going to give you some stuff. Should make you feel really good about yourself. Don't worry about all the specifics of it. As long as you feel good, we're happy and you can live a good life. Over and over again, Jesus told us to die to ourselves. He told us to take up a cross and some people he told outright, hey, you know what? This is not going to end well for you. Praise God. I mean, that's what he's called us to. This is a sacrificial life change moment. So it should be a little bit uncomfortable. So going forward, as we see those two kind of sandwiched in there, again, you see these kind of themes. The difference between just an exercise, a godly sorrow versus a worldly sorrow, true repentance versus just, you know, going through the motions. Legalism versus true obedience. He goes on and now stands before the governor Pontius Pilate in verse 11 and it says, And Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, You Say so. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders. Now, this is the interesting thing is you've kind of got him standing before Pontius Pilate and you got all the chief priests and the elders out in the crowd yelling these accusations and everything that he has done and calling out all the awful things that he's done while Pontius Pilate is standing up there kind of, you know, deliberating between the scene. But when they had accused him, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate to him, do you not hear how many things they witness against you? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now at that feast, that would be the feast of the Passover. And remember, we talked about kind of the timing. We're now in the daytime. We're now have come full circle into the morning. They ate the Passover feast the night before. Now they've come into the into the next morning. You're into the first day of unleavened bread. We're coming to the end of that. We're getting into this kind of theme where the the Pontius Pilate, he had already said that on this feast, he is 
usually going to let a prisoner go as a sign of goodwill from your occupying force. You know, hey, let's keep everybody happy. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to release some prisoners on your feast day and make everybody a little bit happier. It's bread and circus. It's all a show to keep everybody happy and appeased and nobody rioting and all that fun stuff. So now at the feast, the governor was wont, or he, he usually would release unto the people a prisoner whom they chose. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said to him or to them, whom will you that I release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. And when he had sat down on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have now nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, what whether of the two will you that I release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all said to him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out the more saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could prevail against, he could not prevail against this, but that rather a tumult or a possible riot was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See you to it and then answered all the people and said his blood be on us and on our children then released he barabbas to them and when he had scourged jesus he delivered him to be crucified now the scene as we said you're now to the judgment seat you have Pilate, you have jesus you have all the chief priests and elders out there chanting and shouting all these atrocious things about jesus and what he's done and trying to convince Pilate that he needs to be put to death and you have Pilate being the magnanimous occupier and saying hey you know what i'm going to release a prisoner to you here's my political escape um i can release jesus and then i can get off the hook i'm just doing what i've always done on the feast time I don't have to put him to death. We can end this. The Jews can do whatever they want to do after that. It's a nice little political maneuver there, right? He just was banking that Barabbas, this awful guy that they had as a prisoner, would not be their first choice compared to Jesus, who even Pilate is looking at going, I don't know your history, dude, but I don't think you belong here. But the way Jesus conducted himself in this trial is astounding. I mean, wouldn't you agree? Most people could not wait to give their defense. They couldn't wait to stand up against their injustice. I mean, all you got to do is just watch Facebook or watch CNN or watch whatever you want to of any trials, especially of actors or famous people or, you know, whatever it may be. I mean, even people who are like holding the gun standing over the dead body with a video camera FaceTime living it, okay, on Facebook, will still go in and say, I'm not guilty. It's like, well, I'm sorry, but there's no universe in which that would stand up. How in the world can you be so crazy in your mind to say you're not guilty? We've got it on FaceTime. It's there. Everybody saw you do it. This is not a... Shocking kind of mystery. You live streamed it. Everybody knows you're guilty. And yet they'll stand up and go, absolutely not. Did not, had nothing to do with that. I am not guilty. If the most wanton murderers in our day would stand up and vehemently deny their guilt. And again, all you have to do is watch politicians. They're great at standing up and denying their guilt. Okay. But they will do it with such brash, lovely, there's no way I'm guilty, okay? Everybody likes their time in court and their time on the camera and their time to say how innocent they really are. I didn't do this. It wasn't me. It was the system. It was whatever. It wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. Of all the people in all the universe and all the time of human history, Jesus 
is the only person who can honestly stand up and say, I am 100% not guilty, never have been, never will be. Yet when his time in court came, when his time came to say, I'm not guilty, he didn't really say anything, did he? That is so contrary to our nature. We want to be the first ones to tell you it wasn't us. I mean, just look at your kids. Who broke the jar? It was not me. Who left their clothes out? It wasn't me. Well, that's funny because those are the clothes that you were wearing. It still wasn't me. Anybody wants to stand up and tell you how not guilty they really are. Nobody really wants to be accountable for their actions. Jesus, of all people, had all the right to stand up and say, guys, you got the wrong man. There is no way I'm guilty of any of this that you are going to try and ascribe to me. Instead, he remained silent. It's a very interesting way of dealing with this moment where your life is hanging in the balance as it would have been perceived by everybody else. Of course, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. But, you know, we want to see this great courtroom scene, don't we? I mean, that's why we all love. I mean, think about your courtroom movies that you've ever watched. And the one that I always go to is A Few Good Men. And I mean, you can't get past, you know, Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. You know, you can't handle the truth. Everybody loves that, right? That's like that is an iconic moment. All right. Jesus didn't give him any of that. Even when he was accused saying, have you have you been going around saying you're the king of the Jews? And he said, If you say so. I mean, he didn't even give them anything to go off of. No sound bites to replay later on TV. Nothing. Just silent. You'd say, well, maybe he was doing that because he didn't have anything good to say. Maybe he was doing that because, no. He actually was embodying the role that he was prepared for. When you read in Isaiah... Chapter 53, verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut out of the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. Jesus was just doing what his role required him to do. He was embodying the sacrificial lamb. The sacrificial lamb goes before his shearers, Silent, they don't make any noise. They go, they undergo what they have been destined to undergo at that moment, and they're quiet in the entire event, as is told to us by Isaiah. Here, you have that being embodied by Jesus. Why did he not speak out? Why didn't he stand up in his defense? Why didn't he brazenly proclaim his innocence? And why did he not stand up and, you know, and defend himself? I mean, that's just what a good man would do. Stand up and defend yourself, dude. Say what you need to say. Call everybody out. Chastise the elders. Call out Pontius Pilate. You know, in other scenes, he does kind of give the the slight to Pilate. As Pilate says, you know, I have the power to, you know, your life is in my hands, man. I can kill you. I can let you. Don't you know I have the power over your life? And he's like, dude, you don't even have any power. And whatever power you have over me was given to you by my father. So what power you think you have really doesn't exist. And the power and the role and the authority that you have right now over me in this decision that you think is your autonomous free will. I'm just the the strongest one in this picture. He's like, the only reason you're even here is because my father has graciously allowed you to be here. Otherwise, he was completely silent in their accusations. He was living the role of the sacrificial lamb. What is so striking about this and why it's brought up and why it's a point that needs to be addressed and looked at. Obviously, you know, Jesus told his disciples in kind of prophetic terms, 
both as they were going out while he was still in his ministry, but also post-Christ as they go out into the world and they preach the gospel. He made a prophecy and said, you're going to be taken before men. You're going to be taken before courts. You're going to be taken before Jewish leaders and all this stuff. And he says, and when you do, you don't have to go in there with some pres- prescribed, prepared, you know, defense of yourself. He says, in fact, just go there and be quiet. The Holy Spirit will give you whatever you need to say. Embody the role that I am embodying. Live the life of the lamb. Don't go in there trying to defend all of your actions because in honesty, your actions most of the time are indefensible. Instead, let the Holy Spirit and the power of the word of God stand as the only defense you really need. So there is kind of a thing for us that we need to kind of embody this role sometimes because sometimes we're just too quick to defend ourselves in all of our actions. Defending everything we did. And get, man, we can come up with some really, really good ones. Again, we get back on that legalism track. You can find all sorts of arguments out of the Bible to justify why your actions are taken from things outside of the Bible. Okay? Why what you're doing does not match up with what God commanded us to do. And then you can use the word of God, as many did in the New Testament time, to go, yeah, but see, you know, I'm just... I'm giving it to the temple. I've already kind of said that that's for the temple and for God. So I would honor you, mother and father. But, you know, I'm already giving that money to God. You know, I'm just doing what the Bible told me to do. We can use it to justify ourselves no matter what we're doing. Sometimes it's better for us to just keep quiet and let the word of God speak for itself. Say, well, why would you do that? Why would you live this way? Why would you love this person? Why would you forgive this person? Why would you do whatever? And you go, yeah, I don't really have anything else to say other than that's just what the word of God says. How could you be so radical in your graciousness to this person? Because that's, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have another defense. All I know is that's just kind of what Jesus said to do. So that's just what I'm doing. If it wasn't for Jesus, man, I'm all with you. Nail him to the wall. Throw the book at him. Let him be crucified. Whatever you know. But unfortunately, Jesus told me that's not how I'm supposed to treat him. So I'm just doing what I'm just just if you have a problem with it, take it up with God. Take it up with his word. Take it up with Jesus. When that day comes, you can ask him why we were supposed to treat people the way he commanded us to treat. Otherwise, I'm just default leaning on what God told me to do. It's a silent defense. It's not justifying your actions. It's not trying to make you look like you're the magnanimous one that is so smart and so eloquent and so whatever. It's just going back and saying, this is how Jesus lived. This is how I'm choosing to live. Another reason why this was such a pivotal moment is because when you take this section of scripture, Isaiah 53, obviously Matthew 27 was not written at this event we're about to read about, but Isaiah 53 was. Um, this whole scene, though, of Jesus going silently before his accusers is actually the evangelistic tool that was used by Philip to convert the Ethiopian. When you flip over to Acts chapter 8 and you look and starting in verse 28, we won't read it all, but when Philip was commanded by the Holy Spirit to go join himself to the Ethiopian and to preach to him and to and talk to him about Jesus, you know, doing that whole evangelistic thing. When he was got onto the bench with him there as they're riding along, the Ethiopians got Isaiah opened up to chapter 53. And it says that they were reading this area. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shears. So opened he not his mouth and his humiliation. His judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch or the Ethiopian answered Philip and said, I pray you of whom speaketh this prophet of himself or some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at that same scripture and preached to him Jesus. This scene was so impactful for that Ethiopian that he's reading it going, who is this guy? 
Who would do this? It was such a unique scene that it caused this Ethiopian to be sitting there with Isaiah opened up. And there's a lot of other really crazy things in Isaiah that he could have been stuck on. Okay. Especially if he had also had a scroll of Ezekiel. Would he, would he just had like a whole just conundrum there that, that poor Philip would have to wade into. Um, would have been interesting for Philip to weigh into that and let us know what Ezekiel's talking about. But um, here with Isaiah, this is the scene. This is where he's at. The, the Ethiopian is stuck at this moment. Who is this guy? guy that is so oppressed that would not even open his mouth while he's being cut off from the land of the living. But more importantly, why was he doing this in this manner for his people? Is it this guy? Is it the prophet? Is Isaiah that did this? Or does he speak of another? And Philip said, oh, let me tell you about another. Let me tell you about the one this is talking about. Let me tell you about Jesus, the Messiah, who came and was silent before his accusers as he went to the cross, took their transgressions on himself, and for his people died to set them free. That is why this moment is so impactful and should be in our lives. This is why we, in the same manner, can use the same tool for evangelism and should talking about the one who didn't stand up with a sword to slay all his enemies and conquer a kingdom but rather through his silent death slayed the world slayed the greatest enemy which was death and the devil And accomplish salvation for his people that would never, ever, ever come to an end. Established a kingdom for his people that expanded around the entire world and throughout all ages that would never end. A silent death that led to a monumental victory. So Jesus was okay With not defending himself. He was okay with being the sacrificial lamb. He was okay with giving up his life. The just for the unjust. And he was okay to die for his friends. That they might live. That's what this moment is. When he is silent before his accusers. Now quickly he also. We see this scene of where Barabbas is here. And he's an interesting dude. And um, you know his. The reason that I said we're talking about Jesus Barabbas versus Jesus the Christ is because there was a lot of first century writers. Origin was one of them who thought or at least described in this kind of a historical thing that Barabbas's first name actually was Jesus, which is why Pilate says, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus who is called the Christ? So it would be like, do you want Jesus called Barabbas or do you want Jesus who is called the Christ? That's one reason why that is laid out there and why we say that. The other thing is you'll hear too that people will talk about how Barabbas, which would be separated out if you were looking at it in Hebrew, would be Bar Abbas. Okay. And they'll talk about that. And, and, you know, the Hebrew word for father is Abba. Okay. That's why in Romans you have cry out Abba father, not a boss, okay? But what they kind of think is maybe the kind of Hellenistic Greekification, okay, for lack of a better word, or Aramaicification of the word Abba from Hebrew into this would be Abbas. And so you have this potential where you have Jesus bar Abbas or Jesus, son of the father, set beside Jesus, the Messiah, who was the real son of the father, okay? So that's why it's an interesting scene that you have here. I say all that to give you some nice things to chew on and think about. That has nothing to do with the point of this part of the story, okay? Do not get into it and start going, oh, yes, he's son of the father and son of the father. And look at how interesting and neat is all that. What's interesting and neat and tragic and sad about this story is that the people want a murderous, rebellious traitor over the perfectly innocent Jesus Christ. That is the main point of this story. The whole thing about this is that the people cried out all the more violently for the wicked, reprobate, degenerate Barabbas over the perfect Messiah who came for them in the first place. 
He's sitting at this scene for them. He didn't come here because it was vacation day in heaven and decided I would go to earth and be tried for 33 years. He didn't decide that because it was the fun thing to do. He didn't decide it because he didn't have anything better to do in eternity. It's not because things were getting boring. It's like, yeah, I've seen that same movie. They're showing the same one. And this is like year 5,653. And, you know, I'm just getting really bored up here. I tell you what, I'm going to take an excursion down to earth. We're going to do some crazy stuff for three. And I'm going to make things. That's not why he came. He came for us. And in fact, in John, he'll say he came to his own. He came to his people. For the purpose of being a light to his people. For the purpose of establishing and conducting himself in the manner that he prophesied and said going all the way back to Abraham he would do. I'm going to take care of my people. I'm coming for my people. I'm going to come to you first. Jew first. Then the Gentile. I mean all these things that play out. He's here because of them. And they said you know what we don't want you. In fact we don't just not want you. We want you dead and out of the way. Give us Barabbas. He is a more appealing option at this moment. That is what's tragic about this situation. That is the condemnation that is coming out in this. Even Judas, who is the wicked betrayer of Jesus Christ, felt bad about the fact he was sacrificing innocent blood and threw the money back. These people don't care at all that they're killing Jesus and in fact want him dead. And don't just want him dead, want Pilate to release Barabbas. So what you've done in this situation is you have not only just condemned a man to death, an innocent man to death, which is tragic in and of itself all on its own. But the fact that you're not the injustice of the fact that not only are you condemning an innocent man to death, but you are setting free a guilty man is tragic. That is how wicked the hearts of these people were in this moment. This is where the shedding of innocent blood comes back. And this is why there's judgment that is placed on them. This is why Jesus says in chapter 23, guys, you're going to see destruction happen in this place. You are going to pollute the ground with the blood of the innocent. You're going to cry out for the blood, I mean, for the life of the wicked. And you're going to condemn and kill the life of the innocent. And because of that, judgment will be wreaked on this place. And it was. So that's where we were looking at back in Numbers chapter 35, Deuteronomy chapter 21. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 23 actually alluded to that when he said that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Catch that all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Okay. From the blood of righteous Abel, who they had nothing to do with killing. Okay. Unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. All of this righteous, innocent blood that has been shed is on you. And they were okay with that. Because they even told Pilate. As Pilate is ceremonially washing his hands in the water. Like, and again, this is not because he was doing it because he was a, a follower of Numbers. But like we read in Numbers, go take that heifer, cut its head off, wash your hands in the river. That's how you become innocent of the shedding of innocent blood. Here, Pilate, the pagan ruler of Rome's, you know, tributary here, is washing his hands of it saying, innocent blood, not on my hands. And they said, that's okay, just put it on us. We'll take that innocent blood on us. And more than that, you can even put it on our children. We'll let them suffer in the destruction as well. And they will, because in about 40 years from now, their children will be ripe age. When Jerusalem and the temple is plowed under. So Jesus already told them that the blood of the righteous was going to be on their heads. And they seemed perfectly okay with that. Now, the next section is that we, I will stop. For my wife's sake, even though. 
I would continue on. Um, the next area that we would look at as we get into, yeah, everybody else is expendable. It's just Emily that I have to go home with. <clears throat> anyway, the next area that we will look at that we can start in preparation reading about is Jesus is taken to be scourged with the flail that the Romans like to use. See, this would be round two. He's already been beaten up by the Jews, and, you know, they had so many restrictions on them, they could only hit him 39 times because they didn't want to overstep their bounds and hit him 41 and then be guilty of the law. Again, we've got to be really kosher in what we're doing. Make sure we're keeping the law just right while we're beating the innocent man, okay? The Romans had no problem with beating Jesus. They had no restrictions. They had nothing to stop them. They used this flail that they had called the flagellum, which had multiple little whips on it. So it was like not just one whip, but like nine together. They talked about how in historical accounts, this thing could rip bone clean. That there were some people who were disemboweled by it. I mean, that's how, that's how intense this was. And then on top of that, to kind of add salt to the wound and insult to injury, then they take the cross beam, this massive wooden plank that you get strapped across your back, and then you're going to have to march that bad boy up a hill to get fastened to the vertical beam and ultimately be crucified. So this is the beginning of the last hour. This is the beginning of those moments that we have been talking about for the last several chapters. The six days has dwindled down to this day, has dwindled down to the last few hours of Jesus's life on earth. And here is about to come the culmination of the entire event. So as we go on with this, go ahead and read forward and capture those moments. But also, as we've been talking about, we need to put ourselves in those moments. We need to kind of embody those moments and let them shape us. Because as we will see going forward, it was the cross of Jesus Christ. Not just his three years of ministry before that. Not everything he talked about back then. Not everything after that, the resurrection or those kind of things. There was this pivotal moment where the cross of Jesus Christ, of what he did there and its importance shaped the entire New Testament church. When they went back and talked about what it was they were persecuted for, why they were being tried, or what sufferings they were going through, they all rolled it back to say, I suffer for the cross of Jesus Christ. I suffer for preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. I suffer for following in the steps of Jesus Christ, of taking up my cross and following Him. So we'll keep that in mind as we go forward.